Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about one of almost everyone's favorite topics, but one that's not so popular to speak about right now, travel. And we have a nationally recognized expert to do that with us. He's Christopher Elliott. Chris is an author, advocate, and journalist. His books are practical guides that help people make smarter purchases. He's founded two nonprofit organizations for consumers. Chris also writes six weekly columns that have a combined reach of 10 million readers, which are published in such highly recognized publications as Forbes, The Washington Post, and USA Today. He also contributes his advice to a variety of media organizations, including National Geographic, NPR, Smithsonian, and Travel and Leisure. You may be quite familiar with Chris's books, including How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler and Save Time, Money, and Hassle, published by National Geographic. You may, however, be less familiar with Chris's advocacy efforts, not only in behalf of travelers, but other consumers too. He's written a book on that topic, Scammed, How to Save Money and Find Better Service in a World of Schemes, Swindles, and Shady Deals. He's founded Elliott Advocacy, a nonprofit organization that empowers people to solve their problems and helps those who can't. In addition, His website helps readers through direct advocacy, journalism on an ad-free website, and maintaining the largest database of executive contact information on the internet. Welcome, Chris. Glad to have you on Looking Forward. Hey, thanks a lot. Chris, I know that you spent quite a bit of time in Austria and Germany growing up. Is that what first kindled your interest in travel and writing about travel? Yeah, I grew up in Europe. My parents were in the ministry, and so we moved around a lot. My father is a Presbyterian minister. He's retired now. And so, you know, we, we would move sometimes once every six months. And, and I think that being nomadic like that is something where when you do it and it kind of gets in your blood, that's probably what happened is it got in my blood. And so uh, I ended up really being kind of nomadic, Bedouin, we'll call it what you want, <laughs> not just in Germany and Austria, but then when I came back to the States, I moved around a lot. I was in New York, and then I was in California and Florida, and I just kept going. And I think that that's, it's not just the lifestyle, but then, you know, you, you choose something that you love to do. And I, I love to travel, but I also love helping people. I think that's really my main calling in life. Yeah, we're going to talk more about that too, Chris. I might add that I lead a class on the best American travel writing. And one of the things that we often talk about in our class is how the experience of doing what you have done, i.e. traveling, widens a person's perspective and opens their mind and helps to prevent the kind of biases that occur when people are not exposed to other cultures and people. I totally agree with that. I was raised in a family that had very strict rules and strict beliefs. And so, uh, and, and I don't get me wrong, I love my family, but being in a city like Vienna, 
and going to the schools there and being around the people there really opens your mind up in a, in a big way. And so that had a profound influence on my life. And a travel really does broaden your horizons. I, by the way, I wouldn't consider myself a travel writer at all. People often call me that. I, I am first and foremost a consumer advocate. I happen to specialize in travel. That's one of my specialties. But I can't imagine not living this life. I, I really love being in a different place and experiencing a different culture. And the, even being stuck in France for three months during the uh, outbreak of, of COVID-19 was an incredible experience being there in, in France and seeing how they deal with the coronavirus. I had some great stories in the Washington Post and USA Today about that. And I just consider it a privilege. Every day that I get to travel is a privilege. Isn't that wonderful? Quick follow-up question. Do you speak German? Yeah, natürlich spreche ich Deutsch. <laughs> okay. okay, I'll have to take your word for it. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, all right. I'm languages are a little bit of a sore spot right now. I have just a, a little background on me. I'm a single dad and I have three kids. They're all in college, but they're younger. So they're kind of accelerated. I have an 18 year old son, a 15 year old son, and a 13 year old daughter. And two of them, the both boys are learning languages and they are. And when I say accelerated, I mean they're hyper accelerated. One of them speaks Spanish. Portuguese and French. And the other one is learning Portuguese and Japanese. So these guys are like citizens of the world already. And they're picking it up so fast. And, and I wanted to pick up a little Portuguese too. And it just, you know, at my age, I don't think I, I don't consider myself old, but something happens to the brain, you know, and I am, I just am not that fast. And my kids are live, leaving me in a dust, but I still have the German and I can say, kids, I still speak German and you don't. And good luck, by the way, learning that language. It's a little confusing. <laughs> yeah, that was another benefit of growing up in, uh, in Vienna and moving to Germany. Chris, you sort of alluded to this earlier. You put a lot of effort into what some have called solutions journalism, where you serve as an advocate helping consumers resolve their travel and other kinds of problems. What made you decide to become a consumer advocate which uh, you speak to as more of your passion than just writing. It's the advocacy that's the passion. Yeah, I think that I would have given up journalism a long time ago, traveling. It can be, for some people, it can be uh, a, a lifelong calling, um, but it, I don't think it was enough for me. I don't think, you know, people have asked me a lot about how I got into to advocacy. I think that the cases just started coming in. I was there uh, early on in the early days of the internet, I, I put up a website and, uh, and as a natural outgrowth of some of the stories that I was posting, people would send me questions and say, look, I've got this problem with an airline or I've got a problem. My appliance blew up or whatever it is. Yeah. And I felt like, and maybe it was the fact that I grew up uh, the, as the son of a minister who was in the business of helping people. That was, you know, that's really what being in the ministry is about. And I think that I, I felt like I needed to help these people. And, and as I started answering them, I thought, you know, there, there might be, I might be able to write a story about this. And I, I wrote a story. I knew the uh, travel editor over at the Miami Herald, uh, Jane Waldridge, who was, she was a, the editor there at the time. And I asked her if she was interested maybe in publishing some of these, and she was. And within two or three years, 
that column became syndicated. And then National Geographic Traveler called and asked me if I wanted to become their ombudsman. And so it was a little bit of a snowball effect. So that's how I got into it. But I don't think that there was a, a moment when I, I said, from this day forward, I will be an advocate. It wasn't anything like that. It was just a slowly I found myself helping people more and more, and it felt right. Yeah. And you know, that's a common theme of successful people that I've been speaking with, Chris. They kind of evolved into whatever it is they're doing. They didn't have a beeline to it. It wasn't so direct. And your example, again, reinforces that. And I will add that the way that I heard about you in the past, I knew about you before reaching out to you recently, is back in the days when my Philadelphia Inquirer had a good travel section. <laughs> oh, yeah. You had your column in there, and it was kind of twofold, which it still is, I think, that is what you put out there. It was informative, but you also solved somebody's problem. That yes. That's really great about it. Well, and, and you know that you were talking about solutions journalism. There are people with various definitions of what solutions journalism is, but we basically can agree that solutions journalism is taking a problem uh, and fixing it and helping people avoid that problem too. A lot of journalists just go in and say, I'm going to point out the problem. They don't even try to fix it. They just point out the problem. And I think that's one reason why we have so much resentment toward the media right now is all they're doing is talking about problems, but never about solutions. Uh, solutions journalism says, find a problem, identify it, and then come up with a solution. But what I would do is go a step farther and say, don't just talk about the solution and fix the problem, but also tell everyone how they can avoid that problem. So those are like the three pillars of the advocacy is find a problem, fix it, and tell everyone else how to avoid the problem. I think that's great. And I know that just in life in general, you make a mistake, you have to fix it up, repair it, whatever you can do with it, if it is re reparable. But you have to take something from it, too. You got to learn, like, either not to do it again, or if you're going to do that again, do it in a different way. That's what learning is all about. That's what life is all about. Chris, Looking Forward focuses on the future. But to do that, we first like to look backwards a little bit. And this is going to be a tough one for you because you've got a wealth of experience in the years that you've been focusing on travel and advocacy. But despite that, I'd like you to please share with our audience, your perspectives on some of the key changes that have occurred in the world of travel since you first started writing about travel, right up until COVID arrived. Not when you're in France for those three months, but up until then. How's travel changed since you started, Chris? And tell us when you started. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> Roughly you're, speaking, we don't need the exact date. No, but you're making me, you're making me look so old now. Um, I started, I was in college, so it was uh, in, I probably wrote my first travel story in 1986, maybe 1985. And I, I wouldn't say that I said, oh, you know, I travel is the thing I need to do. Most newspaper travel section, most newspaper, college newspapers don't have a travel section. So that was not even really an issue. I think I wrote about my first travel story was a spring break narrative about going to New Orleans. Um, okay. So that, I think that that puts me at about 1987. Okay. And I would say generally the biggest changes that I've seen have been in the airline industry. Airline. You know, in, in the, um, I, I took my first flight in 1969. It was a Pan Am 
747 Clipper from JFK to Munich, Germany. Munich. And I and I was so young, I don't remember, but there's pictures of me and they had these little baby hampers that they would stick the, the little children in when the uh, after the flight got airborne. And so I was probably, you know, a few months old. But I do know from looking at pictures and from talking to my parents that they all had a very humane amount of legroom, even in economy class. They called a coach class back then. They served meals on China to all passengers, even if you were sitting in the way back. <laughs> they did smoke, which was not a good thing. <laughs> I'm glad they got rid of that. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh, it was an event. The flight attendants were all friendly and they were trained in the art of customer service and they were not surly or, or angry and there were no confrontations about face masks. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, maybe. <laughs> but we've had wow, confrontations a, before face. We there were confrontations before. Okay, face. yeah, okay, no face masks. All right. Yeah. Yeah, no, there were yes, you're right. There were there still were. They, it's referred to as air rage. But talking about airlines in uh, 1978, the Carter administration deregulated airlines. Everyone then thought it was a great idea. And what you have is this slow downward spiral of airlines to the point now where even before COVID, it, it's an almost unrecognizable experience. You board a plane and you're sitting in economy class and you wedge yourself into those seats. And, you know, I'm a tall guy, but even I see people who are even regular, you know, average height, just really struggling with the seat, either the amount of personal space, the amount of space in front of you or next to you, because the seats have gotten a little bit narrower or a lot narrower. The food is non-existent. I mean, now, uh, and I'm sorry to bring COVID into this, but they're just throwing this box filled with kind of snack food and it's not even really good and a bottle of water. They're throwing it on your seat. They don't even hand it to you anymore. <laughs> and it is just a dramatically different experience. It's a fee for everything. So uh, in 1969, you could choose an airline seat. You could choose the meal that came with it. You could always rest assured that a flight attendant would be somewhere on, along the aisle offering people a beverage. And now either you don't have the option of a meal or you have to buy a meal and they may, they may try to sell you a beverage if you're one of the low-cost carriers. And, and I think the reason I'm focusing on air travel so much is that it's emblematic of the rest of the, the travel industry is that the airlines have always been in a leadership position. So as you see other industries, car rentals, hotels, vacation rentals even, tours, they all take their cues from the airline industry. And so as the service levels have gone from, we are the gold standard for customer service in 1969 to we are at the bottom of the barrel in 2000 or 2019. Those are the changes that I've seen. And it's really heartbreaking to see it because I love this industry and I want it to succeed. And I want people to go out and travel. I love traveling, but I do not like what has happened to the travel industry. The cynics would call it commoditization. I would just call it a race to the bottom. Wow. Now on that note, just to follow up, just to see if we can shed a ray of light here. I don't know if we can, Chris. You mentioned the no smoking. Hey, that's a win. That was a win. Is there anything else in your mind that has improved? I mean, some might argue, yeah, Chris, but I'm going to be for COVID. I don't honestly know. I haven't traveled since then. Some might argue, yeah, but if you're talking about airlines, what about the fact that somebody can fly to uh, Sarasota where I have a property and they can do it for $25 or whatever? Is there anything else you can point to that maybe 
has improved in the last 30 years that you've been doing this? Oh, you are being the devil's advocate, here, my friend. <laughs> Just one example. That's awesome. Yeah. And the Air Transport Association, or A4A, would tell you that airfares have gone down and continue okay. to go down, and especially now. I'm not going to argue with that. But what I would say, though, is if you take the fees and all of the, you know, the luggage fees, for example, we haven't even talked about that, but you used to be able to check two bags. There would be no fee. You could say, hey, I've got this third bag. And they'd say, all right, just, you know, put it on and we're fine. Yeah. Now, first bag, second bag, third bag is like $50 now. And some are as high as $150, I think, which is absolutely insane. These are called ancillary fees. So my point is, if you take these ancillary fees and you peel them off the airfare, I think that the decline in airfares is much less of a decline. And in fact, we may even be flatlining right now in terms of the value that you get from the agency. Airlines just keep coming up with new fees. It's absolutely absurd. Um, and the thing that people don't really have a, a firm grasp on is that airlines are making a lot of their money from loyalty programs. So they try to hook you on getting your miles and then they are making a ton of money from selling those miles to credit card companies. I, you know, I started my career on Wall Street and there's a saying about the widows and orphans, how they get stuck with the, the dogs, the worst stocks, right? Well, it's the widows and orphans who get stuck holding these miles. What you have to understand is that frequent flyer miles have no value. You can go and look at the, your terms of service. They have zero dollar value, right? You're also making decisions that are not good for you. You're, you're making decisions in order to get more miles, miles that you might even not even be able to redeem. And we're all paying for it. The widows and orphans, everyone is paying for it because that 3.5% that you're using that the credit card company is taking as a merchant fee is actually, the, the merchants are just going to raise their prices. And so uh, it really, what we're not in this vicious, vicious circle of collecting miles and then prices potentially going up. And then at, at some point, really, it's got to end. At some point, there's going to be too many miles outstanding. No one is going to be able to cash them all in. But in the meantime, though, airlines are making a ton of money off of your loyalty and off of your miles. And uh, I think that that right now is the biggest problem that the travel industry is facing is this. It's not quite a pyramid scheme, but it's very close to it. Chris, that was so enlightening. Seriously. I mean, I'm really glad that you pointed that out. Because it does give us another way of looking at the lower fares that I had not considered. And I know that the frequent flyer miles may never be used, but you really went into greater depth with that. So thank you very much for that. Now, everybody knows, I don't have to tell you, I don't have to tell our listeners that the travel and hospitality industries are hurting now due to COVID-19. So now we're in present day. From your vantage point, what do you think will be the long-term impact of covid on both business and consumer traveling. And I'm thinking here, Chris, about questions like who will travel? Where will they stay and visit? How often will they travel? How will they book their trips and a myriad of other things? If you could just give us your wise perspectives on that. Oh, I don't know how wise my perspective is, but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> well, let's so. say informed. You're informed. informed. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say my kids might uh, beg to differ with you on the wise part, but uh, that, that's a lot of questions. You you just you just threw my way. Um, you don't I, have I to would, answer all of those. Just your perspectives okay. on how COVID think, will affect things. All right. Well, uh, some of the long term changes are that a lot of business travelers are now flying on Zoom airlines. 
So they're staying put. <laughs> yeah. And, and no frequent flyer miles. <laughs> no frequent flyer miles, but it's a lot faster. <laughs> and, you know, hopefully if they can all behave, they will keep their jobs and, the, and they will be able to be productive without having to darken the door of an aircraft unless they want to, you know. Uh, what we're seeing now is that a lot of airlines are adding new leisure routes. So they think that the money that they're going to be making will be made from the leisure travelers, the people who are going on vacation. So I think that that's their long-term growth plan is add more leisure routes and hope for the best. And I think that that's kind of, that's a good medium-term solution because those business travelers, they're not coming back for a while and they may actually never come back. I mean, I remember when I was a cub reporter at a travel magazine that I will not mention. I don't want to embarrass them. But this was 20 years ago, and it was at the very beginning of the internet. This is more than 25 years ago, actually. And I had figured out a way of doing all of our production and editing remotely. And I stood up at an editorial meeting and I said, guys, we don't, ha- we don't need an office anymore. And everyone laughed at me. They said, ah, of course we need an office. Well, it only took what, 25 years, but now people are realizing that, you know what, we don't need an office anymore. We can do everything from home. I mean, I should note that you and I both are in our home offices right now. Absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of long-term changes in the travel industry, I really think that we're going to be choosing the way that we fly will probably be more of a leisure thing than it will be a business travel thing. Flying might be more expensive. And also lodging is going to change in a fundamental way. We've already seen the shift from hotels to vacation rentals. There's a perception that vacation rentals are safer. And I think that's the reason why is that you have the whole rental to yourself. It's not that the vacation rentals are cleaner. In fact, they probably are not cleaner than the hotel, but you're not sharing it with, you know, 400 other people. And so I really think that that is going to be a remarkable, dramatic shift going forward is that people are going to think of lodging in a different way, where it might be an Airbnb or a VRBO instead of a hotel. And I think also what we're, we're right on the, the cusp of a big change in transportation. I love car rental companies, and I think they serve a purpose. But now I think that ride sharing and other means of getting around are going to really take off after this whole COVID thing dies down. I think people might be less interested in owning a car and more interested maybe in just the act of getting from point A to point B and finding the most efficient way, whether it's mass transit or renting a car or ride sharing or getting an electric scooter even. That's interesting that you talk about that. I I guess I just have two quick follow-up questions. Where do you see Amtrak railroads fitting into any of this? Oh, I think they have a pretty bright future. Maybe not right now. Look, it's still mass transit and people being on mass. You, you could probably get one of those private cabins and stay a little safer. I, I talked to Amtrak about that just a few days ago. And that's, that's really what they're pushing now is the privacy and the, the relative safety of having one of those. I think they call them cabins. I don't know. Births. Births cabin. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I grew up in Europe, so I should know about trains. Maybe I know the German word for that. I don't know, but <laughs> uh, yeah, trains definitely. I, what I would like to see is uh, more investment in mass transit. And this is the the guy who grew up in Europe talking. I think that it's probably a better thing than relying overly relying on air travel or even roads is kind of diversifying a little bit and. You can see some communities already doing that. I mean, if you go to places like Portland and Seattle, they've really doubled down on mass transit. 
so I think that 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 might have a very bright future as well. Okay. And coming back to the airlines again, you mentioned that you see airline fees going up. And I guess I sort of have an A and a B question as follow-ups to that. One is, do you think that it will go up because they're losing the business travel dollars? And B is, will service get any better? You were talking about the service, the race to the bottom. So those two things, the fees going up, will service get any better? No, I don't think service is going to get any better. In the short term, it might get a little friendlier because the flight attendants and crew members or wherever you are, you're the hotel workers are just grateful to have you there. So I, what I've seen in the short term is people saying, hey, you know what? They treated me really well. I was one of four guests at the hotel. Yeah, when you're one of four guests at the hotel, they are <laughs> going to treat you really well, obviously. It's a good ratio. <laughs> it's a great ratio if you're a customer, not so good if you're running a hotel. No. But right now, what the airlines have done is they have hitched their wagon to this uh, business model that is very unfortunate. The model is fees and adding as many fees as possible and pushing their loyalty programs. If you take away all the fees, the ancillary fees, and if you take away the loyalty programs, every airline in America would go out of business right now. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, even even with the loyalty programs, if you look at some of the filings, you know, Delta took out a loan against its loyalty program. If you take away the loyalty program from the airline, it's not profitable anymore. And then if you take away the ancillary fees, it's bankrupt. I don't just mean like it's bankrupt, bankrupt. I'm talking about like chapter five, it's insolvent bankrupt. And yeah, that I think that people don't understand that that's, those are the two very fragile legs that the airline industry is standing on right now is they're relying on fees and they're relying on your loyalty. And during the pandemic, both of those have been called into question. You can't just pile on the fees anymore. You've already seen a lot of airlines removing their ticket change fees and loyalty is not a given either because, well, if no one is flying, what do you do? Well, a lot of these airlines have uh, and, and credit card companies have started giving away miles for grocery store purchases and buying flowers. And it's just stupid because, you know, in the end, you just you just have more worthless miles. And, and by the way, if your uh, airline goes out of business, those miles are gone. Yeah, right. All those accumulated miles. And I have quite a few. And I was going to use those frequent flyer miles for a trip to Mallorca back in May. Well, that never happened. So they're still sitting there and they're not earning any interest either. No, it's a depreciating asset. It's uh, those miles, they they lose value by sitting in there. And and right now, my recommendation would be use it or lose it because we just don't know what's going to happen to the rest of the airline industry here. They didn't get a second round or clean extension of CARES Act. I'd like to say something about that, by the way, because the CARES Act was an almost no strings attached. The government didn't say, hey, you got to stop charging these fees or you got to treat your customers better. They didn't say anything like that. It was just, they just gave them the money, which I think as a taxpayer, I find deeply offensive. Wow. Chris, as you well know, there were a lot of people and probably still are quite a lot of people employed in the travel and hospitality industries. And at the same time, many of those people have lost their jobs. And so my question for you would be, where, if not now, and it probably isn't now, do you see potential opportunities for a student who's going to be finishing college in the next few years? For somebody who was laid off, 
whether they were in the travel and hospitality industry or not, for an entrepreneur, for a retiree who's looking for a second career. Do you see in this decade, we were not going to talk about now because it, it's not there now, but do you see a glimmer of opportunity out there for any of these individuals? Well, what I can tell you is that the only sector of the travel industry that really seems to be doing okay right now is vacation rentals. So if you have a vacation rental, you probably are going to be doing all right for the next couple of years at least as people move away from staying in hotels to vacation rentals, which they perceive to be a little bit safer. I also, in the short term, there is a little bit of good news. I talked to Priceline about some of the booking data that they've been seeing, and it looks like hotel rates are actually, between Christmas and New Year's, are actually up from a year ago, so people are paying more. They're not, it's not a lot, so the hotel rates are up by about 5%, and car rental rates are like 2 to 3%. So that's a glimmer of hope. I would not try to go work for a car rental company or a hotel right now, and I definitely would not send your resume to an airline. It's just dead. And speaking of dead cruise lines, I mean, yeah, don't even go there, right? <laughs> but, as you, but Chris, just to, again, to follow up on that, as you go a little further out, let's say we get mm -hmm. most of this behind us. It may be around for years and years, but let's say we get most of it under control, hypothetically, and let's hope. Will these things come back? Will jobs come back in the travel and hospitalities industry that have been lost? Will there be opportunities for people? Yeah, I think so. I think that there's a, a universal human need to travel. So people will always need to go somewhere for whatever reason. I think that in the medium term, we're going to see a, a bumpy road ahead. But uh, in the long term, I'm pretty optimistic about the overall industry, I think even the really hard hit industries like airlines and cruise lines are going to see a bounce back in a couple of years and maybe even less. I mean, I, I want to try to be optimistic about this. So if, you, if you're thinking about a career in the travel industry, I would say don't give up. People are not going to stop traveling. It's, it's, it's never happened before. And I don't, I mean, it would have to basically be the end of the world if people, before people stopped completely traveling and we're not there yet. Now, you are very well schooled in travel and the mistakes that people make. And I know you wrote the book and I love the title, How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. And oh, by the way, save time, money and hassle. What are some pearls of wisdom that you can share with our listeners about how they can become smarter travelers especially in this uncertain travel climate, although some of these things probably are applicable whether we're in a COVID situation or not. I'm going to give you two tips that I think were kind of the underlying themes of how to be the world's smartest traveler. One of them is to always read the fine print. People make assumptions when they're booking travel that, uh, you know, I've done this before, I know the rules. And uh, travel companies love to slip changes into their contracts of carriage and cruise ticket contracts that people are not aware of. And suddenly you realize you've signed away all your rights. You've suddenly, the cruise line has, uh, this is just as an example, has the right to skip all the ports of call and, uh, and kick you off the ship whenever it wants to. And so knowing about this is really, really important. Even reading your fare tariff is important. Know what the restrictions are for changes. People don't bother doing that. So if you do just one thing, 
before your next trip. It's just read all the fine print. The fine print in your hotel stay, the thing that they put in front of you when you check into the hotel that says, I agree to all these terms, read that. When you're at the car rental counter and they show you that little screen that says, I agree to all the terms, read all those terms instead of scrolling to the bottom and signing. So if you do that, you're gonna avoid 95% of the problems. And then the other 5%, well, that's what my consumer advocacy organization is there for. The other thing that I would say is know which government agency regulates the travel company that you're dealing with. So for example, if you're cruising, the Federal Maritime Commission, if you're flying, the Department of Transportation, hotels are regulated at the state level. So it'll be your your attorney general, your state attorney general would be the the person to appeal to if you have a problem. Also, uh, rental cars are also regulated at the state level. And if you're traveling outside the country, know which government agency is responsible so that you can then complain if something goes wrong to the correct agency. A lot of people don't bother reading the fine print and they don't know where to go to if they have a problem. So again, if you get those two things squared away, now you're closer to 98% of fixing the problems before they're even a problem. <laughs> and so the, the other 3%, that's where I come in. That's where you come in. So I gather you see a lot of problems arising from people who don't do those two things. Well, I'm going to tell you a funny story. Whenever you, whenever you uh, ask my consumer advocacy organization for help, so you go to the website, elliot.org, E-L-L-I-O-T-T.org, and you click on the little button that says help. There's a form there that people have to fill out. And the reason is that I need to get all the data points for you know, what went wrong, when did you travel, when did you make your purchase, what are you looking for? And then at the very bottom, you know, in bold letters, it says, I agree to the terms of of your advocacy. And I'm I'm not giving the exact terminology. The lawyers wrote that. But basically it says, I'm letting you, but you know, the the quid pro quo here is that if, if if I want you to advocate the case and you take on the case, that you get to publish a story based on the findings and you you get to mention my name and the city that I live in. So there's no right to privacy at all, but it's all right there and you have to read and you've got to click on that X there. And it's, it's very obvious. It's, I'm not trying to hide anything. And almost every week I get someone who had, you know, has had a terrible problem and we ask them to fill the form out and I send them a, a version of the story and I say, okay, here's the story. And they go, oh, I don't want my name in the paper. <laughs> I don't want you put, putting it online. And I'm going, this is how you got yourself into trouble in the first place is you didn't read the fine print. <laughs> That's a great example. <laughs> you know of what you speak, Chris. You know of what you speak. So to all of your listeners, please yeah. read. If you're not going to read any of the fine print on your travel purchases, at least read the fine print on my site before you ask me for help. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Two last quick questions. You don't have to give long answers, but they occur to me. One is travel agents. Any future for the travel agent industry or has the internet really killed it? No, I don't think so. I I think that travel agents have a very bright future, but I would emphasize good travel agents. And I run into the bad agents online all the time. They're the ones that don't want you to criticize uh, anything or even tell their clients that maybe they shouldn't be traveling. I got into a little spat the other day with a couple of them and they were asking for the person who posted this article to be fired 
uh, an article that I wrote. And this is kind of the old way is that you're either with us, you're against us, and they're just in the transactions business. That's the old, the old way of doing things is that travel agents just took your orders and then uh, they collected a commission. But the, the new travel agents are, they call themselves travel advisors now. Uh, they are on your side. They often will charge you a fee just for their services. So they're like a financial advisor or an accountant is that they're, they're true professionals. They're looking out for your best interests, not necessarily their best interests. That's been a really difficult thing for agents to wrap their heads around is that you're an advisor to, and you owe your allegiance to the customer, not to the supplier. And I think that the, the ones that survive are going to understand that they have to, they've got to be on your side, not on the airline side or the tour operator side. And they, they can't have it both ways. Okay. Chris, is there a certification for that? So somebody would know? that somebody is, has agreed to act in your best interest? Like a um, designation? No, I mean, not, not really. There's um, the American Society of Travel Advisors, ASTA.org, has a listing of its members. And that's probably the closest you're going to get to having someone who is certified and takes it seriously. Okay, thanks for that. The other question that came up in my mind was travel insurance. Can you just say a few words about the advisability of it? Does it really depend on one's age and or health? I think travel insurance is a really good idea. You know, after 9-11, the uptake rates on travel insurance were above 10%. Now, after COVID, they're closer to 30%. Hmm. So you have 30% of people who are taking a trip are buying travel insurance. You really have to look at how you already are insured. Sometimes credit cards will cover you. Sometimes your uh, auto insurance will cover you, your medical insurance could cover you. So make sure that you're not buying too much insurance. Don't take the first insurance policy that's offered to you. Consult with either a travel advisor or someone who you know and trust, and then make an informed decision based on that. Excellent advice. Chris, let's let our listeners know how they can find out more about you, about your books, about your syndicated columns, your nonprofit Elliott Advocacy, and anything else you can manage to fit into that schedule of yours. Oh, Please. gosh. Okay. So my shameless plug here. First of all, Jeff, thank you for having me. Oh, it you're welcome. It's truly been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Um, my consumer advocacy organization is called Elliott Advocacy. And you can reach that online at elliott.org. So that's E-L-L-I-O-T-T dot O-R-G. The help form the one where you have to read all the fine print is elliot.org forward slash help, or just click the button that says get help. Um, I also uh, have a several columns. Unfortunately, the Philadelphia Inquirer is no longer running my column because they don't have a travel section. So <laughs> there you go. I know. But you can read me every Monday in USA Today. The column's called On Travel. And on Sunday in the Washington Post, that column is called The Navigator. And then I still have a syndicated column that runs in several, you know, Tribune newspapers. So if you're close to a Tribune-owned newspaper, I think that Baltimore Sun carries it. Uh, that's called the Travel Troubleshooter. But you can also find that online on my site, so Elliot.org. And then my personal website is, is just chriselliots.com. So it's just my first name and my last name and then an S. So chriselliots.com. And you can find a lot of my columns there, too. Okay, that's great. Now, there's one other thing I mentioned when I introduced you, 
that I think is very important, a service that you provide. I, I do want you to speak for a minute on that, please. You have this list, this contact list of executives, correct? Correct. It's an, ama- it's an amazing source or resource, oh. whatever. Can you talk about that briefly? Yeah, no, thank you for mentioning that. That's one of the things that we do. And it's kind of an outgrowth of uh, some of the more frustrating cases that we dealt with in the past. And that is, you know, you get to a certain level and you ask a representative on the phone, is there someone, maybe a supervisor that I could talk to? And they say, no, there are no supervisors, which of course is a lie. They're, they have to answer to someone. It's not like they're floating around out there autonomously and uh, doing their thing. (laughs) So I took it upon myself to start researching the names, numbers, email addresses of all the executives. And I started with travel. We've expanded to a lot of other industries too. And, you know, we have probably about 600 uh, companies right now listed. It's not finding them that's so difficult, although that's really, really hard. It's actually keeping the list updated because a lot of times people will come and go and CEOs will leave. And then the other thing we have to deal with as well is companies that will try to get us to remove the names and numbers of their executives. And we, we usually, well, I'm not going to say usually, we always say no to that. We don't remove, unless it's someone's personal phone number. We once had the address, the home address of the CEO of Greyhound and someone showed up at his his home with a problem. And I thought, you know, maybe that, maybe that crosses a line. So we did remove that. But, you know, we're talking about solutions journalism before. This is vigilante journalism. No question about it. We're giving people information and power to contact someone at a higher level. And it really works. Every day I get emails from people who say, I contacted the CEO and I got my case fixed. So if you need that information, it's there for you. It's totally free. I think it's a wonderful service and it's been great having you on. You not only provide a lot of information, you actually help people individually and collectively to avoid some of the pitfalls or at least to confront them and get through them. I can't ask for a better calling than that. And you get to travel when, particularly when things aren't this bad. So thanks again for being on Looking Forward. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, Jeff. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.